1: The consequences are not necessarily that significant. They're not that major. For example, from the time that I was six years old till I was 11 years old, I consistently, habitually, as a matter of my modus operandi, I missed my school bus. Now, I went on to go to high school. I went on to go to college and then graduate school. So we know that that was recoverable. That was something that I missed because it was recoverable. And and why was it recoverable? Because I was in a unique situation where my school bus passed my house twice. It would go past one time and then turn around at the end of the road and come back up. So I would watch. I'd, I'd watch the school bus as I was running up my driveway late, panting. And then I would almost certainly catch it on the second time through. There are other things in life that you can miss. And the consequences, although they are embarrassing, they are recoverable. You can go through something in life and you can miss something and the consequences can be embarrassing but recoverable. For example, on September 14th, 1999, I had made all the arrangements when I was dating Janet. I was going to propose to her. I was gonna take her on a dinner cruise on the spirit of Portland in Portland, Oregon. So I had the romantic evening all planned out. We were going to be on that cruise ship going down the Willamette River, and right around dinner time I was going to pop the question. It was purposely, perfectly planned. The only problem is that I was late getting Janet and we missed the cruise. (laughs) Now, it was recoverable because the next day, September 15th, I proposed to Janet in a different way, and she said yes, and the rest, as they say, is history. But there are certain things in life that we can miss the recovery of which is impossible. Certain things in life we can miss and it is impossible to compensate for them. The miss can be so significant, so monumental, so eternal that nothing else that we do in life can compensate for it. No achievement, no accomplishment, No activity, no endeavor can compensate for missing certain things. If you miss this, you miss everything. Turn with me in our Father's word, Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse one. Luke chapter 10, verse one. In our Father's word, as we continue through the Gospel of Luke, Carried no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house." Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Now there were people who would look at the scriptures and read portions of them selectively and come to this erroneous false conclusion that Jesus never judged anybody. But here we have not only Jesus passing judgment, but Jesus condoning the passing of judgment by 72 that he sent out to spread the gospel to advance the kingdom of God. See, members of the Nighttime Bible Reading Society, you think that you've heard that phrase enough, but you haven't. People who read the Bible at night, lights off, sunglasses on, and one eye closed. People who selectively read portions of Scripture and sanitize it, which really there's no such thing as sanitizing Scripture when you remove portions. That's muddying the waters. People who read the Bible selectively would come to that conclusion that Jesus was some type of a lover of everybody to such an extent that everybody was welcome no matter what they did, no matter how they did it, and completely miss that Jesus did judge people. The very nature of the gospel message in itself is a message of judgment, a message where you and I have a decision to make. Will we receive it? And be spared of God's judgment or will we reject it and fall under the judgment of God? Here we have Jesus not only affirming the reality of passing judgment but also encouraging the 70 plus that he's sending out to pass judgment by wiping off the dirt from the shoes. I don't want you leaving those towns with so much as the soil on your feet from that town. Wipe it off as a judgment against them. So don't let anybody from the Nighttime Bible Reading Society tell you that Jesus never judged anybody because Jesus absolutely did judge a lot of people. That's the trend of following Jesus. We do what Jesus says, we follow where Jesus goes, we believe what Jesus teaches, and we take serious the fact that Jesus, out of all the illustrations he could use here, of likening the people who would miss him when the kingdom of God was drawing near, to what does Jesus liken those people? They're worse off than Sodom was. And we'll take a look at what actually happened to Sodom in a moment. See, so you could miss Jesus when he's passing by. You can miss the kingdom of God, and there is no other accomplishment in your life that will compensate for that. In fact, many people are trying to compensate for disobedience to God by doing all types of other service for God except the one way that God has called you to serve him. And guess what? It doesn't cut the mustard. Take it from somebody who's recovered from that. I have learned the hard way. It is not possible to compensate for disobedience. There's no amount of money you can give. There are not enough good deeds in other realms that you find important if you reject, if you neglect the area that God has called you to of surrender. Now, here, what God is calling people to is to accept the fact that the kingdom of God is advancing. The kingdom of heaven is near, that the Messiah has arrived on the scene. It's time to wake up. It's time to acknowledge the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And I'm excited about this passage of scripture because we are seeing an expansion of Jesus' ministry. That's exactly what we are seeing. Because in the ninth chapter, if you turn with me, in the first verse of Luke chapter nine, verse one, we see something of striking similarity. It's a deja vu experience. Same thing, but yet a little bit different. Same thing, but yet significantly different. In Luke chapter nine, verse one, he called the 12, these are the apostles, together and gave them Power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, Take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. And what do we see here in chapter 10? A passage of striking similarity. But this time, it's not the 12, it's the 70 plus. The kingdom of God now is expanding. The followers of Jesus is now growing to the point where it is no longer just the 12 apostles, significant because we have one apostle for each of the 12 tribes of Israel. That's why there are 12. We know elsewhere in the scriptures that Jesus says that you will judge the tribes of Israel. One apostle for each of the tribes. That's why there are 12. Romans chapter 1 verse 16 says, I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God unto salvation. First for the Jew and then for the non-Jew, the Greek, the Gentile. And this is precisely what we see in Luke chapter 9 by Jesus sending out the 12. First and foremost to the Jewish people. The number is symbolic and it's also not symbolic it's specific and here in chapter 10 we have Jesus sending out 70 or 72 well which is it is it 70 or 72 some of you have translations where it would say 70 if you had the King James or the New King James for example it would say 70 if you have the ESV Other passages of scripture, other translations, it would say 72. So which is it? Is it 70 or 72? It's actually both would be appropriate, depending on what you are looking at. What do you mean, Mike? Let's take a look at this. In Genesis chapter 10, there are three sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The flood has taken place, and now the world is to be repopulated by the sons of Noah, And in Genesis chapter 10, in the Hebrew translation of the scriptures, the nations that are listed there add up to the number 70. But in the Greek translation of the Hebrew, known as the Septuagint, the translation of the scriptures that Jesus would quote from and reference, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, the Septuagint, the number that's given is 72. Now, in the epistle, the epistle of Aristeus. it's an ancient, particular passage of writing, an ancient passage of, that was written, the writer seems to believe and advances this idea, this legend, that there were 72 translators of the Hebrew manuscripts into the Greek. Now, today, the equivalent written language would be English, or if you're in South America, it would be Spanish, but back in the day, it was Greek. Greek was the written language. And that's why there needed to be a translation of the Hebrew scriptures into the Greek, the common language of the people. And depending on your delineation of nations, what you would consider to be a nation, it could be 70 or 72. And so why would Jesus send out 70 or 72 here in Luke chapter 10? Because God is showing us That the gospel is for all people everywhere. That the kingdom of God is for all people everywhere. It begins with the Jew, to the Jewish people. And it expands and goes to the othermost parts of the world. So that by the time we come to the book of Revelation, we see people from every tribe, every tongue, every language gathered, gathered around the throne of Jesus, worshiping different skin colors, different ethnicities, different nations. In the book of Acts, the apostle Paul is teaching and preaching, and he says that God established the boundaries of all the nations. It goes back to Genesis chapter 10. Paul takes that seriously as the Old Testament passages of scripture being factual, historical, true, reliable. And we see Jesus doing the same thing by referencing Sodom, a real place that had a real problem and incurred real judgment. And so what we're learning here from this passage of scripture is that the kingdom of God is advancing. The kingdom of God is drawing near. And that it's not just for the Jewish people, it is for everybody because the gospel is simply this, that all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans chapter three, verse 22, 23. Romans 3:23. all have sinned, all means all, fall short of the glory of God. There is not a man, woman, boy or girl on the face of this earth. It doesn't matter what country you live in, what ethnic group you are part of, whether you are male or female, old or young, all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the bad news. We're all in the same boat, rowing in the same direction. We are all separate from God. The good news is that God is not satisfied leaving us in a situation of permanent and eternal separation from him. And it begins to the Jewish people, with the 12 apostles, to the 12 tribes, and it expands now to the 70 plus, representing every single nation on the face of the earth. And now God has many more than 70 or 72, through whom to advance his kingdom, namely someone like you. this is the mission of the church brothers and sisters this is what we are called to to advance the only kingdom that will endure forever the kingdom of god it was true then and it's true now there must be a sense in your life of everything in your life pointing toward and revolving around a mission a vision that is greater than your own limitations, your own limited resources, the limited length of your life, no matter how long it is, your legacy is wrapped up in worshiping and surrendering to God to such a degree that everything in your life is for the purpose of worship and bringing others to the realization that Jesus is the living and true God. That's the kingdom of God. Not some things in your life, not most things in your life, everything in your life. And it's significant, not just symbolic, it's significant that Jesus is sending the 70 plus representing every nation, the origins of every nation on the face of the earth and sending them out and demonstrating giving a teachable lesson that the gospel is for all people everywhere. We are not to discriminate against anybody. The message of the gospel begins with bad news that all of us fall short of the glory of God, that God hates sin to such an extent that he would deal with it personally, knowing that we can't deal with it personally. And the gospel is the message of God's love. Because Jesus wouldn't die for junk, God wouldn't pursue garbage. There is no such thing as the good news without talking about the bad news. The good news is understood in proportion and helps us jump up and down and scream with delight in proportion to our understanding that all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The good news is fully understood, more fully appreciated and grasped and embraced and enjoyed when we understand the bad news, that when Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden, we were all kicked out of the garden as a consequence. We're all living outside of Eden, separate from God, In sin I was conceived in my mother's womb, the psalmist says. All of us, not some of us, have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but are justified, made so that it's just as if you've never sinned freely by the grace given to us by Jesus Christ. And what Jesus is doing here is sending people into all of the world and telling them to pray earnestly because the harvest is plentiful verse two. The laborers are few and the case is still the same to this day. We can never have too many people who are soldiers for Jesus Christ. We'll always have civilians. We'll always have people with a civilian mentality, but it is only those who have a soldier's mentality who are the ones who advance the kingdom of God. What do I mean by that? Look at what Jesus does here in verse four, something similar to what he did in chapter nine with the 12 apostles. He says, carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Don't dilly-dally, don't waste your time. I'm sending you on a mission. The mission is clear, you're to heal the sick. You are to proclaim the gospel. You are to tell people whether they want to accept it or not is irrelevant. Be careful that you don't preach the gospel to people based on whether or not you think they'll receive it. It is not up to you, it is not up to me to determine somebody's receptivity to the gospel. If Jesus was concerned about the receptivity of the gospel, he wouldn't have even sent the 72, the 70 plus. He wouldn't have even sent them. He anticipates, even as he sends them, there are going to be people who will reject me. There are going to be people who will reject the message, yet I am still sending you. We must learn a lesson from that. We do not share the message of the gospel. We do not go about advancing the kingdom of God, spreading the news about Jesus Christ based on whether or not we think people would be receptive. We preach the gospel. We tell people about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We tell people that all people are dead in their sins and far from God, spiritually dead. We tell people that Jesus Christ came and died on the cross in real time on real wood, in a place called Jerusalem, outside the city gates, we tell people that. Because it's true. We share the good news of the gospel, helping people understand that all of us have gone our separate way. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Why do we do that? Because God says we are to do it, that settles it. That's the issue. And whenever you're more concerned about whether or not someone will respond to the gospel and that becomes the motivation for you shrinking back, it is a reflector of the fact that you are more concerned, listen to this, at that moment with what people think of you than what people think of God. The greatest news that you have for anybody at your place of work, in your family, even your in-laws, the greatest piece of news that you have for somebody is that the kingdom of God is near and it's centered upon the person and works of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus' ministry here is taking a quantum leap forward that it's not just the 12 to the nations of Israel. It's a foreshadowing and a nod to Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Look with me. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Wait a second. These guys have been with Jesus for three years. Aren't they qualified now to go out and preach the gospel? I mean, the 72 have already been sent out. They had already been sent out in uh, Luke chapter 9 to go out, the apostles, and preach the gospel, but Jesus says, you're supposed to wait. Wait for what? Wait for power. Why is the power of the Holy Spirit important in the life of the apostles? Why was the power of the Holy Spirit important for them? Why is the power of the Holy Spirit important for you and for me? Because we cannot do God's work without God's power. when you do god's work and god's power it's the difference between taking out a frozen stick of butter from your freezer i don't care how delicious that bagel looks and we had some nice ones a couple of days ago from panera some nice bagels that you, we put into our toaster and hit the bagel setting on the toaster so that they were crispy on one side and crispy on the other can smell it now but you take a frozen stick of butter I don't care how sharp that knife is and you try to butter a toasted bagel with some frozen butter you have a hard time you take some soft butter much easier it's the same way with ministry you try to do God's work in human power and it's difficult and it's hard God knows that That's why he gave you as a follower of Christ, the Holy Spirit. That's why he tells the apostles, wait until you receive what you must have to do my work. And that's what we see in Luke chapter one, verse eight. You will receive power. That's what he says. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem And in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth, here we see in Luke chapter 10 a nod to this being realized in the book of Acts, that the gospel is for all people everywhere, all nations, regardless of skin color, regardless of where they live, the gospel will go to the ends of the earth and then the end will come. That's what scriptures teach. Now, it's interesting here that out of all the examples that Jesus could use to liken people who are snoozing, liken people who are missing the kingdom of God when it draws near, who are not embracing him as the Messiah and Savior, of all the examples that Jesus could use, he uses Sodom. He uses Sodom. Now, people have misunderstood the sin of Sodom. They really have. For example, here's what a liberal quote-unquote scholar has said people do with the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. And I'll just read it because it's a perfect example of what you could read on the internet or read in commentaries for decades to come about how people twist the scriptures as members of the nighttime Bible reading society, reading portions of it. Someone has said this, for example, for years, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah has been twisted and manipulated by religious leaders in order to condemn others and thereby make themselves appear more righteous. You know, I was studying to be a criminal trial attorney as an undergraduate knew a thing or two about argument and persuasion and reasoning, making a statement doesn't prove it so. Where's the evidence? Saying this That the story of Sodom and Gomorrah has been twisted and manipulated by religious leaders in order to condemn others and thereby make themselves appear more righteous does not prove it to be the case. You haven't proved that that's the reason why it's done. And then they went on to say the real sins of Sodom were greed and pride. And these are sins that many religious leaders are often guilty of. Actually, that doesn't go far enough. These are sins that every single one of us is guilty of, including the person who wrote these liberal words. For all have sinned, fall short of the glory of God. Actually, what could be said is that it are, it's these people that have twisted and manipulated the scriptures to justify their own sinful behavior and to call black white and white black wrong right and right wrong. And what I'd like to do is rather than me saying and giving you the impression that this is my opinion about the sin of Sodom, I would rather go to the word of God, beginning in Genesis chapter 19, where we can read for ourselves what the sin of Sodom was, why it was significant, and why Jesus, by referencing it, demonstrates that he believed Sodom was a real place with a real problem that underwent real judgment. In Genesis chapter 19, Beginning in verse one, the two angels came to Sodom in the evening and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, my lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, no, we will spend the night in the town square. God had sent the angels to see for themselves if there were any righteous people living in Sodom. You know this if you look at Genesis chapter 18 with Abraham's dialogue with God. They're just a handful of righteous people, will you, will you spare that town, that city? And God says, yes, I will. So the angels needed to see for themselves whether or not there were righteous people, God keeping his word. No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house and he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house and they called to Lot. Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them to us that we might have sex with them. ESV says that we might know them. Reading the Old Testament passage in the original language, that's what it would say, and you'd be able to understand what it means, but I'm just helping you understand clearly what is being implied here. No, the men of Sodom weren't unhospitable. That's to say the least. The men of Sodom weren't just greedy and idolatrous, although they were. That's the understatement of the year to say that they were impolite and treating Lot in an unhospitable way. Now if you want to read the Bible at at night with sunglasses on, eyes closed, you can come to any conclusion you want to about that, but this is what the actual passage says. Verse 6, Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man, two virgins. This is about sexual purity and sexual immorality. Lot knows that these people are perverted. He knows what they're going to do, and he's even willing, as a righteous man, meaning, humanly speaking, doing the will of God, not without sin, he's willing to offer his own daughters so that these people would not incur the judgment of God. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. And they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands, the angels, and brought Lot into the house and with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both great and small. Small and great, so that they wore themselves out, groping for the door. That's how given over they were to the immorality. Then the men said to Lot, have you anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city? Bring them out of the place, for we are about to destroy this place, because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, this is the idea of betrothal, that you were basically as good as married. That's why they were considered sons-in-law already. They just hadn't consummated their unions. where am i verse 14 lot went out and said to his sons-in-law who were to marry his daughters up get out of the place for the lord is about to destroy the city but he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting as morning dawned the angels urged lot saying, up, take your wife and your two daughters who are there, here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered, so the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters. See, the judgment of God is imminent. The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah was so significant that God was about to wipe them off the face of the earth as a permanent example of how God deals with all sin. In this particular case, the sin of sexual immorality, as we're going to see from the scriptures. Verse 17, as they brought them out, one said, escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, oh no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life, but I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to and it is a little one, let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. He said to him, behold, I grant you this favor that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there, therefore, the name of the city is called Zoar. Historical accuracy, precision. Verse 23, the sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven and he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground, but Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. What was the sin of Sodom? Why was God judging it? The sin of Sodom was sexual immorality. In Genesis thirteen thirteen, before we even get to Genesis 19, it says that the sin of Sodom was great going up before the Lord in Leviticus chapter 18 look with me at Leviticus chapter 18 and then we're going to look at Leviticus chapter 20 you shall not lie with a male as with a woman it is an abomination I'm not saying that other than repeating what the Word of God says you shall not lie with a male as with a woman it is an abomination Leviticus 18 22. Leviticus 20 If a man lies with a male, as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. That's a fancy word for bad, not good, not something God approves of. They shall surely be put to death. An abomination is something that is not natural. It's not the way God intended it. Their blood is upon them. What was the sin of Sodom? It was sexual immorality not just the fact that they were violent. See, the reason why they were violent is because they were so given over to their lust, so given over to the abomination, so given over to the abnormality that they had a lust and a craving for more. This was, no pun intended, fresh meat for these men. There were newcomers who were there, and I would imagine the reason why they weren't interested in Lot and the reason why they were interested in the two angels is because they probably were pretty good-looking in their appearance as men. It's the understatement of the year to say that the people in Sodom were being judged by God simply because they weren't hospitable to the two visitors. That's the most ridiculous understatement of the year. But don't believe it because I'm saying it. Don't believe it because Leviticus 18 or Leviticus 20 say it because you might not like the book of Leviticus. I would want you to believe it based on what the other passages of Scripture say as the commentary on what the situation was in Lot. What is the issue of Lot? Look at Second Peter chapter 2. Second Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 4 for if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah. Look at how Peter takes the story of Noah to be a literal, true story, not the story that's coming out in IMAX with Russell Crowe. If he did not spare the ancient world but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, it affirms the biblical story, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes he condemned them to extinction, Making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly verse 7 and if he rescued righteous lot greatly distressed by the sensual Conduct of the wicked the sin of Sodom was sensual sexual misconduct For as that righteous man lived among them day after day he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that, they, that he saw and heard, verse 9, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Powerful passage of scripture. I'm not commentating on what the sin of Sodom was. The Bible is commentating on what the sin of Sodom was. Now, maybe you're not convinced yet. Maybe we need to go to the book of Jude. Look with me at the book of Jude, beginning in verse 6. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept an eternal chain. Sounds very similar to 2 Peter, doesn't it? They're agreeing with each other theologically under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day, which, by the way, is what Jesus is referring to in Luke chapter 10. It will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for those who did not accept me. Look at verse 7 of Jude. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise were not hospitable to Lot, Which likewise just weren't kind to him. No. Which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire. Serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh. Sexual immorality is a defiling of the flesh. Paul says all other sins a man commits, he commits outside of his body. But when a man, a woman sins sexually, they defile themselves. They defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. Jude 8, 9. Do we have 9? No, Jude 8, 9. The idea of defiling the flesh Peter has said it, defined what the sin of Sodom was, sexual immorality. Jude has said it, defined, explained, commentated, helped us understand what the sin of Sodom was. The sin of Sodom was sexual immorality, perversion. The book of Romans, chapter one, beginning in verse 18, explains it even further. The reason why the men of Sodom were violent and given over is explained in great detail Right here in Romans chapter 1 beginning in verse 18 for the wrath of God the punishment of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth meaning the truth was there and you're putting a lid on it you want nothing to do with it we don't want this God stuff we want to do our own thing Verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. This is why all people are without excuse. Verse 20, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. All creation screams that there is a creator. I don't care whether you believe in a literal six-day creation or whether you believe in a day-age view, whether you believe in the gap theory or whatever. We, sh- we must agree on the reality that all creation screams and cries out to us that it is a cr- there's a creator. And the things that have been made so that they are without excuse, for although they knew God... Therefore, as a result of rejecting God, God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, here we go, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever, amen. Verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up to honorable passions, This is the idea of God handing people over, withdrawing his blessing, which is a means of judgment and punishment. Verse 28, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness evil covetousness malice they are full of envy murder strife deceit maliciousness they are gossips slanderers haters of god insolent haughty boastful inventors of evil disobedient to parents foolish faithless heartless ruthless though they know god's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die and is this not this next statement is this not reflective of where we are as a society they not only do them but give approval to those who practice them now you might say that sounds like a bunch of hate speech to me you're right you're right god does hate certain things If we have a problem with these passages of Scripture, the real problem is with God. Not with the people who simply believe that the Scriptures are true. God is a hater. He is a hater of sin. God hates your sin. He hates my sin to the point of not letting us continue in our sin. God hates the sin and loves the sinner. For God so loved the world that he gave his one-of-a-kind uniquely brought forth Son, that whoever, whether you're a greedy person or an idolater or a slanderer or a swindler or a thief or sexually immoral person, it doesn't matter what your sin is, fill in the blank. It doesn't matter how often you've committed the sin. Maybe you've been a murderer. Maybe you've murdered people. In your mind and in your heart, you're guilty. Maybe you've committed adultery. Jesus said, whoever looks at a woman lustfully has committed adultery with her in his heart. God hates that sin. So much so that he would deal with that sin on the cross. You see, mercy and justice kissed at the cross. Where God nailed your sin He nailed your sin to that cross. The punishment that brought you peace was upon his shoulders. That God does not treat you, he does not treat me as our sins deserve, why? Because God loves you. Yes, God is a hater, he hates your sin, he hates my sin so much so that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He hates your sin and he hates mine to such a degree that he would do something about it when you and I didn't even realize what we had done. See, even on our clearest moment, we don't really understand and we don't really have the disgust for sin that God has. We don't. We don't hate sin nearly as much as we should, nearly as much as we could, but we're on a journey. As we read the Word of God, we understand what God hates. We understand what behavior God disapproves of that is an overflow of the heart. And we understand that, yes, it's entirely possible for God to be a hater of sin and a lover, extravagant lover and pursuer of the sinner. There is no God like the God of the Bible, who hates your sin, hates my sin so much that he would take care of it himself, knowing that you can't take care of it. You'll never be able to deal with your sin the way it really needs to be handled. But God can. You'll never understand the love of God to the degree to which you will understand it when you stand before him and see the nail markings in his hands and his feet and understand that, yes, God hates sin and loves the sinner. Was the sin of Sodom serious? Yes, it was. How much so that God permanently destroyed it, wiped it off the face of the earth with fire. And scientists, and theologians can debate about whether or not it's possible to do it this way or that way, strain it gnats, to swallow camels. But what I believe, what we should all agree upon, is that God was able to destroy that city as a judgment against them for rebelling against him for perverting natural relationships between a man and a woman and exchanging them being so idolatrous and so greedy and so covetous so into themselves that they began to exchange what they should have been engaging in for What was unnatural and god handed them over to the point of making an example of them that this is what happens when you turn your back on god whether it's sexual immorality whether it's covetousness whether it's greed which is idolatry whether it's gossip whether it's slander it does not matter sodom was an example of how god treats those who refuse to repent refuse to repent and your judgment is certain and what does jesus say here as the end of it all what does he say here in luke chapter 10 in this final verse verse 12 i tell you it will be more bearable on that day the day of judgment for sodom then for that town, which town? The town that rejects Jesus as Messiah. Reject Jesus as Savior. Miss the kingdom of God when it's right there in your midst. And yes, you've missed the most important thing this side of eternity. There is nothing that you can do, nothing you could pursue that will compensate for missing Jesus when he shows up. Was the sin of Sodom great? You betcha. How great. God wiped them out. But there is a sin even greater than the sin of Sodom. There is a sin that results in the same certainty of judgment that the people of Sodom experienced and that sin is to reject Jesus as Savior and Lord.
0: listening to the michael anthony bible teaching podcast if you enjoyed this message you'll love michael anthony's courage matters podcast where he focuses on leadership relationships and world events to learn more visit couragematters.com or download the free courage matters app interested in requesting michael for an interview guest appearance or as a keynote speaker for your event click the invite tab on the courage matters app or on couragematters.com in the meantime keep looking up There's no place else worth looking.